Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, and I tried to get a little creative with the title today. It's Havenu Shalom Aleichem, which is Hebrew and means we bring peace unto you. And if you look at verse 9, it'll kind of make sense. But even though I'm going to be focusing on verse 9, I'm still going to read verses 3 through 12, since the Beatitudes are all one thought. And so when you are at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of the Word of God, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And our Lord Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the Lord's word. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning, and we pray that you would help us understand your word, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your text, that we would rightly understand it, rightly apply it, that we would be convicted where we need to be, that we would be encouraged where we need to be, that, Lord, your word will not return void. It never does. I pray, Lord, that you would remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess your word up. Uh, We pray, God, that your people will be edified and grow and that the lost will hear your gospel and be saved on this day. And we pray that in all of it, you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. Please have a seat. The word peace, the idea of peace is one idea that most people generally ag- agree is a good idea. We all want peace. We want world peace. We want peace in our homes. We want peace in our neighborhoods. We want peace in our nation. We want peace in our mind. We simply want peace. And yet, peace seems to be the one thing that humans consistently fail to achieve. See, the opposite of peace is war, division, and opposition. And those things seem to be normal for humanity, not peace. I taught both world history and U.S. history for a number of years in various public high schools. And just about every unit that I taught, because I'd break it up into units of study, there was always at least one war that we had to cover. Just think of American history for a minute. The French and Indian War, the American Revolution... The war against the Barbary pirates, the war of 1812, the war with Mexico, the Civil War, the multiple wars against the American Indians, Spanish-American War, American War with the Philippines, World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnamese War, Desert Storm, Global War on Terror, the GWAT, and now we're preparing for war with China, just in case you didn't know. Now, we have only been a nation for 247 years, and I just listed 15 wars. That's a war about every 16.5 years, and that's just for one country. Multiply this idea all over the earth for hundreds of countries and throughout all of time. Clearly, peace is elusive. 
Now, world leaders have naively believed that they could usher in world peace with organizations like the League of Nations. Yeah, that worked. Or the United Nations. How's that working for us? These have utterly failed. And listen, wars aren't the only sign that we lack peace. Insanely high divorce rates demonstrate war within the families. Ridiculously high crime rates show war within our cities and towns. Gang wars demonstrate war within our streets. The growing number of folks who are being diagnosed with health or mental health problems shows there's a war within people's inner being. Again, peace seems to be nowhere to be found. And another thing to add to the problem is humanity only offers failed solutions. Failed solution after failed solution. Why? Because they really don't understand the problem. They think that pills will fix the inner person. They think that global networks will fix international rivalries. They think redistribution of income will fix the crime rate. They think education will fix gang wars. They think bodily mutilation will fix mental dysphoria. And all of that is why things are not getting better. Wrong solutions again and again. The fact of the matter is, humanity does not understand what peace actually is. See, peace, as defined by God, comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom refers to a state where everything is whole, complete, and harmonious. It's all of that. Wholeness, harmony, completeness. It's when everything is exactly as it should be. So then that means peace is not just about having no hostility. That's only one little part of it. Peace is about having wholeness where everything functions exactly according to its good design. That is shalom. That is peace. When you have true peace and true shalom, then you don't have the massive disorder that you see in the world. But there's a problem with this, right? And the problem is that we can't create shalom. We cannot create world peace because the world itself is broken. Adam and Eve brought sin and death into the world. And so now everything dies. We can't prevent that. All this uh, CRISPR and bioethics, they're trying to prevent it. Can't. Can't prevent it. Nature now works against us with natural disasters. We can't prevent that. All humans have a sin nature that privileges pride, greed, lust, and violence. These are the antithesis of peace. And we can't magically change our nature. So because of this, there is a lack of peace. But... At the same time, we cannot escape what we truly are. We are also creatures made in the image of God. Yes, we are fallen, and therefore we are very sinfully distorted. But we are still made in God's image nevertheless. And because of that, deep in our heart of hearts, despite that sin, we long for peace. We desire shalom. We know that something is wrong in the world, and we long and desire for it to be made right. We know that something is wrong with us, and we want it to be made right. Well, the good news is God will make it right. We have a role to play in it, but we're not the ones who ultimately are going to bring peace into the world. God is the one who will make it right. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that tell us that a day is coming when God will make a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sin and death. We will have true shalom. And God has already started the process of bringing that glorious day because we know that sin is what busted everything up. And so God is first dealing with the sin problem. That's what's happening right now. He's dealing with the sin problem by redeeming sinners like us through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
God is on a peacemaking mission to restore shalom. And we're going to see through our text that he's recruited all of us to be part of that mission as well. So we have a, a big role in it. Ultimately, peace is what our text is about this morning. Now, we are only focusing on one of the eight Beatitudes. We're focusing on number seven. It's all about peace. But I keep reminding you that all of this is a bigger picture. Verses 3 through 12 are all one big idea. There's not eight big ideas with eight Beatitudes. There's one big idea. And that big idea collectively is this. I know I sound like a broken record, but this is what it is. There is a right way to think and live, and it brings flourishing. There is a right way to think and live, and it brings flourishing. And that right way to think and live is all eight of these amazing statements. All eight Beatitudes together is the right way to think and live. Each one of those gives us a key component of right thinking and right living. So we're to be poor in spirit. We're supposed to mourn over the lack of shalom in this world. We're supposed to be humble. We're to hunger for righteousness. We're to be merciful in midst of this merciless world. And as we saw last time, we're to be pure of heart, which means we're not to be hypocrites. Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount how to think and live as people that please God. To think and live wisely in this world in light of the world to come and to do so in a way that pleases God. And so all of those things I just mentioned are all part of that. But there's more. We still have two more Beatitudes. This morning... We're going to add to the list. We're going to see that we are supposed to be peacemakers. We are supposed to be bringers of shalom. And so with that, let's look at what Jesus has to say in verse 9 to see what he has for us there. Let's look at it. Verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, here... When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, as I've been telling you, he means flourishing are the peacemakers. Because the word blessed is the Greek word makarios, and in modern English, it would better be translated as flourishing. The mindset of peace and the desire to make peace are part of the right way to think and live. The peacemaker is ultimately the one who's going to be happy because he or she, according to Jesus here, will one day be called sons of God. And there's so much to be unpacked in that. In fact, there's a ton to be unpacked from this whole beatitude. And so that's what we're going to do. Now, before anything else, first, let me just state the most important thing up front. We are called to be peacemakers because God is the ultimate peacemaker. In fact, God is called the God of peace or the God of shalom. Romans 15, Paul says, may the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. And so what that tells us is peace is who God is. It's one of his attributes. If he is the God of peace and we are his people, then we should be people of peace as well. It's that simple. It's non-negotiable. Now, related to God being the God of peace, we also have to consider the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Though people expected the Messiah to come as a warrior that brings war, he came instead to bring peace. In fact, when he rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, Matthew chapter 21 verse 5 tells us he was fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. So I'll read Matthew 21 5, but just know he's quoting Zechariah 9 9. And here's what it says. Tell daughter Zion, 
See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. Arriving on a donkey was a sure sign of peace that every Jew understood. One who comes in conquest gallops in on a steed. One who comes in peace gently trots in on a donkey. Our Lord Jesus in Isaiah 9 is called what? The Prince of Peace. He's called the Prince of Peace for a reason. Yes, he will come in conquest at his second coming. The Bible makes that clear. But he came in his first coming to bring shalom. And that's why he enters Jerusalem peacefully on a donkey. Now, something that's worth noting before I go on is that all these beatitudes, every single one of them is embodied in Jesus. So if if these are about the flourishing person, nobody is a more complete or whole or flourishing person than Jesus. He embodies all these. What about being poor in spirit? In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. He says, I am low in spirit, lowly in spirit. In John eleven thirty five, he weeps with Mary and Martha, which means he's one who mourns. Jesus was also humble. Same Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, I am humble in heart. He did not resist those who did harm to him, but he exemplified quiet strength. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness, for he is the only one who ever lived a perfectly righteous life. He always did what was right. He never did what was evil. Jesus was also merciful. Just read the Gospels. By healing the lame and the blind and the unclean, he had pity on human suffering. He did something about it. He didn't just say, go and be warm. He did something about it. But he was also merciful toward sinners. Calling a tax collector like Matthew to be an apostle That's mercy. Rescuing the woman caught in adultery, that's mercy. And so a lot of examples like that show he was merciful. And of course, Jesus was pure in heart. There was no hypocrisy in him. His inward thought and his outward actions were perfectly aligned with the Father's own holiness. Jesus was perfect, perfectly pure in heart. Well, it's no different here. He's also the perfect peacemaker. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And thinking about this, there is no way I could possibly exaggerate that statement. I cannot exaggerate Jesus as the ultimate peacemaker. You can't. I don't care how you try. You cannot exaggerate it. When you think of the peace he brings, there's nothing higher. He makes peace between us and God. Divinity and humanity are at enmity with each other. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. Divinity added humanity to himself so that he could bring God and man together in peace through his work and his sacrifice. Think about the famous passage in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 about Jesus being the one mediator. Have you ever thought about why he's the one mediator? It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. The reason why Jesus is the mediator between God and man is because Jesus alone is both God and man. And so he is able to bring us back together in unity. In addition to bringing peace between God and man, Jesus also makes peace between human and human. Now, first talking about just unredeemed humans, just humanity in general, he shows us that he brings peace because what is the most quintessential division in the Bible? between humanity, Jew and Gentile. 
Israel and the nations, the wall of hostility separated from each other. And yet, what does Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 tell us about Jesus? It says, for he is our what? Our peace. What did he do? He made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. If Jesus could bring peace between Israel and the Goyim, between Jew and Gentile, then he could bring peace between any set of opposing humans. Now, sadly, within the church, you have believer and believer, and sometimes you have believer versus believer. Sometimes there's a lack of peace among believers, and there's hostility, and the reason is because when we do that, we are fighting against the result of Jesus' work to bring us together. We are fighting against it. Now, you might be thinking, but there's sometimes I have a legitimate reason to be at odds with my brother or sister in Christ. That's true, but Jesus gives you all that you need to work it out. He gives you a clean slate with his death on the cross. And if that's your brother and sister in Christ, he gives them the same clean slate. He gives, he gives you the credit of his righteousness. He gives them the credit of his righteousness. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He gives you a new heart in the word of God. He gives them a new heart in the word of God. He's done everything for you to bury the hatchet, if you will. And he tells you exactly how to reconcile. At the end of Matthew 5 and Matthew 7, Matthew 18, we got no excuse. He is the bringer of peace, even indefinitely, most assuredly, between believers. So yes, in every way possible, Jesus makes peace between human and human. But that's not all. Jesus also makes peace between man and the created world itself. You see, this world is in chaos because of sin, and we can't stop it. But you know who can? Jesus. And he gives us a proleptic or foreshadow of this on the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 4, verse 39. It says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. Just a synonym for peace. The wind ceased. And there was a great calm. So even when, when nature rages, he's like, be still, be at peace. And what did it do? It obeyed. And what that points forward to is the day that's coming when he returns and brings us a new earth where everything is at perfect peace. Everything is still. And so that's who Jesus is. Peace between man and God, peace between man and man, peace between man and the creation. Nobody is a peacemaker like Jesus. No one. And yet, who are we called to imitate? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we are called to ultimately imitate Jesus. Now, the fact that he embodies all these beatitudes and, and, and yet we're called to think and, and live in these ways, it makes sense because we're imitating him. And if this was true for the first six beatitudes, it's definitely true for the seventh. Jesus says, blessed are the warmongers. No, he doesn't, does he? Blessed are the what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Because he is the chief of all peacemakers. You know who's the one who's the main warmonger? You know who brings discord? Satan. Satan is the one. He's the one who tries to divide God and man. Just think of the book of Job. He's the one who stirs up betrayal. Think of him entering Judas to betray Jesus. He's the one who tries to insert divisions and dissensions within the church. Listen, if you have a spirit of war and division, you are not following our Messiah, Jesus. If you're always mad, always contentious, always at war with somebody, you are acting like the father of lies who was a murderer from the beginning. 
Our Lord is the peacemaker, and we are to be like him. So, summing up my point, the reason we should be peacemakers is because Jesus, our Lord, is the peacemaker. Our God is a peacemaker. So, with that, it poses for us a question. What is peacemaking? Because I don't know if I'm being a peacemaker unless I know precisely what peacemaking is. Well, I like the way John MacArthur defines it. He gives a very thorough, complete definition of peacemaking. Here's what he says. He says it, quote, confronts problems and seeks to solve them. And after the problems are solved, it builds a bridge between those who were separated by the problems. It often brings its own struggle, pain, hardship, and anguish because such are often the price of healing, end quote. And if you've ever tried to be a peacemaker between warring parties, you know that's true. That's a perfect definition. Really what, what J. Mack is saying here is peacemaking is hard. It's hard work. You confront problems between two warring parties and you seek to build bridges and sometimes you're taking shots as you're trying to help. That's just what it is. That is what peacemaking is. Now, if you think about that definition, this runs against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? We live in a world where people tell you if it's not your problem, then don't try to fix it. But as Christians, that's not advice we can follow. We also live in a world that tells you, hey, if somebody wrongs you, forget them. Let them be dead to you. It doesn't matter. You don't need them. Well, again, is that advice Christians can follow? That is not advice that we can follow. A real Christian, by definition, is someone who's been saved, right? Someone who's been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Someone who has the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in them. And therefore, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, we all know Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace... Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, if you notice, one part of that fruit, because fruit is singular, but it's got multiple parts, one part of that fruit is peace. Peace with God and peace with neighbors. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to come back to this idea in a moment. But King David in the Old Testament also makes it clear that the one who desires to have a good life in the eyes of the Lord is one who seeks peace. And so verse, uh, Psalm 34, verses 12 through 14, David asks a question and answers it. He says, who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil. Do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's the answer. Now, there's quite a bit in that passage. First, he's saying, don't use your mouth to spread slander and cause dissension, meaning speaking deceitfully. That's what it is. And it brings war and division. He says, no, instead, do what's good. And then he says, seek peace, but he doesn't stop there. Seek peace, pursue it, which is taking it to the next level. Seeking it is one thing, Pursuing it is to chase after it. It's the Hebrew word radaf, which means to hunt or to chase down. You're chasing after it until you capture it. It's not something that you just wait for. Peace doesn't just come to you in this messed up world. 
You have to chase after it. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us the same thing, but he's going to attach a warning to it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, pursue peace with only those you like. Nope, doesn't say that. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Without it, no one will see the Lord, both peace and holiness. See, if we don't actively and intentionally chase, because he says pursue it. If we don't actively and intentionally chase after both peace and holiness, we won't see the Lord. In other words, what it means is if you're a person of hostility and enmity, you're not saved. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong, though. I'm not saying be a peacemaker so you can be saved. That's not how it works. What I'm saying is salvation, being saved, makes you a peacemaker. That's how it works. After all, it's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But if that fruit isn't there, then you've got no reason to think the root is there. If the Holy Spirit produces peace, if the Holy Spirit's in you, but there's no peace in your life, then what does it mean? Holy Spirit's not in you. You're not saved. But if you've been saved, then the Spirit of God is there, and you will be a peacemaker. You'll grow more and more into it. You'll increasingly be one who is at peace and makes peace. You're not supposed to be comfortable with grudges and broken relationships. It should drive you nuts if there's loose ends, if there's relationships that are not in harmony in your life. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with who? Everyone. Everyone, not just your party, not just your tribe, not just the people you like, but with everyone. And as far as it depends on who? On you. If someone else wants to break the relationship, even after you've done everything you can to legitimately make peace, okay, that's on them. That's not on you. But if you wash your hands of them and say, you know what, I'm done with them, then it is on you. Because this says as far as possible. And as long as you're breathing, it's still possible for you to be at peace with them. Okay, so if somebody cuts you off, you still leave the channel open for reconciliation. Okay, and if they want to keep it cut off, again, that's on them. But the moment you close the door, it's on you. My point is, with all that, we can't follow the awful advice of the world, especially in light of what the scriptures actually say. Since our Lord is a peacemaker, we too are to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because war and hostility and the lack of shalom is not how the world's supposed to be. It's not how it was originally made. It's not how it's going to be one day. See, the chaos that we see is normal for only this present evil age. But are we citizens of this age? What does the Bible say? We're citizens of where? Of heaven. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're citizens of the age to come, of the age of perfect shalom. When, and I want you to think about this. When you are a citizen of a country, you live according to the values of that country, right? So if our citizenship is a heavenly citizenship, a citizenship of the perfect age to come, then if the values of that citizenship are peace and harmony, then shouldn't those be our values? Like I'm an American where we believe in the equality of everyone. If I were to go to a country where they don't believe it, still as an American, I'm repping the belief in equality of all people. Well, if I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that's all about perfect peace, then that is something I'm going to be representing in this world. We must display the values of the kingdom of heaven, even if the whole world around us is content to tear itself apart. That's just the facts. That's that's what we have to understand. 
And listen, when we are at peace and we are peacemakers, even in a world intent on blowing itself up, when we display the values of the kingdom of heaven, this is part of our appeal to the lost. If they can see the peace that is in us, if they could see peace in our churches, peace in our homes, if they could see peace between ethnicities and all that within the people of God, then they're going to realize we have what's absent in the rest of the world. And then when they say, where does it come from? How do you do it? We're going to say, you're not going to find it here. It's otherworldly. It comes only from God. But you can have it too. If you bow your knee and submit your heart to Jesus Christ, then you too can have this peace that you see. So again, all it does is strengthen our witness when we, when we live this way. So with that said, I would like to talk about what it looks like for us to be peacemakers. Remember, Jesus is the perfect peacemaker, so we're following him. He is the bringer of peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, and peace with creation itself. Well, what I want you to know is he has drafted you into that mission if you're a believer. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, and I I want you to see what he says to them. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now that's huge. Very huge. First, he greets them with a very old, ancient uh, Jewish or Hebrew greeting, Shalom Aleichem, it's part of my title, which means peace be unto you. He greets them that way because now it's possible. Now it's real. Since he died for their sins and rose for their justification, he has now made peace between them and God. So as God's Messiah, as the God-man, he could say to them, Shalom Aleichem, peace be unto you. You have peace with God now. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say peace and then he bounces. What he does is he says, as the Father has sent me, I now ask you to sit on your keister. No, that's not what he says. As the Father has sent me, I now send you. Well, send us to do what? What did the Father send Jesus to do? To seek and save the lost, to make peace between fallen humanity and God. So we are now sent on the same mission. Now, our work isn't the same as Jesus's. He did all the the heavy lifting, if you will. He's the one who secured salvation for everyone who will believe on him. We could not live perfectly righteous lives. We cannot die in the place of others. We cannot conquer death by coming out of that grave on our own power. Only Jesus could do that. But he did all that work. And by completing all that work, he has secured peace for everyone who will ever believe on him. That work is done. So if he's sending us, what is our part? Simply to be heralds or announcers, to use our mouths to tell the world of the peace that he has secured. So with that said, what is the most fundamental thing we could do as peacemakers? What is the most quintessential peacemaking we could do? It's an E word, evangelism, evangelism. Why? What is humanity's biggest problem? They are not at peace with God. That is their biggest problem. Through their sin, they have declared open war on God and war on his kingship over all things. They have made this, they've made this declaration against God, whether they realize it or not. A day is coming where the king is going to call all of his enemies into account. A day is coming when the angel armies of the Lord will make ripe the harvest and swing that sickle over the face of the earth. And it's, it's judgment 
day at that time. A day is coming when the wheat will forever be separated from the chaff and the wind will blow the chaff away to the fire, the eternal fire. The scripture tells us with so many different poetic, graphic metaphors of what the judgment's going to be like. And sometimes I don't think we think it's real. Loved ones, it is real. It's going to happen. Now, I know in our mind we think it's real, but if you think something, like if you think if a car's about to hit you, you don't just stare at it. I wonder how fast it's going. You know, it'll probably be here in three, you know, no, that's not how it works. You get out of the way because you see it coming because you believe it's going to hit you. So we believe Jesus is coming. We believe those who don't know him are going to be condemned. And we believe that everyone who's not received him is lost. We believe they're part of the hostility. We believe they're part of the chaos. We believe they're part of the anti-shalom. But what are we doing about it? They only have one hope. So let me state this as clearly as I can. If you don't tell them about the Prince of Peace, the one who makes the way back to God, then you leave them in their condition, their condition of not being in peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. If we don't tell them, we are not functioning as peacemakers. Listen, if you have no problem making peace between warring co-workers or between a Karen and a McDonald's shift manager, if you have no problem making peace in that situation, but you don't make peace between eternal souls and the almighty God and whom they've sinned against, then you're straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. Meaning you're doing the little but neglecting the big. We're to do both. We're to do both. And listen, and listen carefully. Here's where I'm going to throw myself under the bus a couple times. Do not assume you have more time to tell others. Because you might not. I had a dear friend that I trained in martial arts with for years. Ryan Spink. He was an agnostic and we used to debate all the time. And I would preach the gospel to him a lot and get him to think seriously about it. But a point in my life came where I just got too busy to continue that relationship, to invest in that relationship. And I always thought I would get another chance. Things will calm down. I'll go back. I'll train with them again. And I'll keep pounding the gospel. He was killed by a drunk driver last month. I'm never going to get the chance again. An off-duty police officer, of all things, was driving drunk and killed my friend. I will never have another chance to tell him about the gospel. Now, the one bright light in this is at his funeral, I learned that he actually started going to church in the last few years. And that I talked to the pastor who did the funeral, and I asked him, do you think Ryan truly accepted Christ? I mean, you know, there was parts in his life that would, you know, go both ways, but that's all of us when, and to some extent, we all struggle with sin. So I just wanted to know, did this guy trust Christ? And he says, I believe he did. And so I pray he did. And thank God if he did, but no thanks to me. No thanks to me. I assumed I had more time with him, but that assumption made me a horrible peacemaker. And and if that one's not bad enough, my grandmother wanted to hear my sermons. There was no indication that she was a believer, but she heard me in 2011 preach a, a wedding sermon for my cousin, and she wanted to hear more. Soon after that, she was placed in an assisted living center, and she asked my mom for me to send her my sermons. So that means I wouldn't have even had to call her. I didn't have to have an awkward conversation where I confront her with her sin and call her to repent. They're always in the sermons. 
So all I had to do was burn CDs. Yes, back then people used CDs. All I had to do was burn some CDs and mail them to her because each sermon had the gospel in it. Did I do it? Did I burn the CDs and mail them? No. You want to know why? Because I thought I had more time. Well, she died pretty abruptly, and I lost the chance. I was a horrible peacemaker to the mother of my father. And, I, and you want to know what haunts me about that to this day? I read three chapters of the Bible every day. That's how I complete the Bible every year. And that the day I found out, before I found out, I happened to be reading Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. And I just finished reading Ezekiel 3.18 where God says, If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, but you do not warn him, you do not speak out to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. It was minutes after that that my mom texted me telling me my grandma passed away. God was telling me something. And I don't want to keep making the same mistake, okay? All I have to hold on to is that maybe some chaplain, hospital chaplain, maybe some roommate did what I failed to do. I don't know. I'll never know until Christ returns or I die, whichever one is first. Now, listen, I don't say all this to make you feel sorry for me. I say it so that you will know that in some ways I mess up just like everybody else here. I keep making the mistake of assuming I have more time. And given that these two instances are 10 years apart... You'd think I'd learn my lesson. I'm trying to learn my lesson. I don't want to keep being a weak peacemaker. Now, don't get me wrong, because I don't want you to think evangelizing just one or two times is enough. I evangelize people all the time. I evangelize people at Starbucks. I evangelize them in the army, um, within my family, on the street. I tell people about Jesus all the time. But you want to know what my problem is? I might be seeking peace, but I'm not pursuing peace. I'm not pursuing it between God and man, especially with those that I have the ongoing relationship with. What do I mean? Well, I'll tell them about Jesus. I'll do it once, twice, maybe even five or six times. But eventually I hit a point where I'm like, I'm washing my hands. I've told them as many times as I'm going to. I'm not going to waste any more time on them. But didn't those passages we read, didn't they say to pursue peace? It's the same word for soldiers chasing and capturing their enemies. They don't stop chasing till they've captured them. Why in the world would I give up on people? How stupid is that? Supposed to keep chasing for peace until it's captured. But if after two, three, four, five attempts, we stop pursuing, are we actually being a good peacemaker? We're not. We're not. And I have one good story. I almost gave up on another person, somebody that I don't know in person, but somebody I know from Twitter. This, this woman, she's had a really rough life. She's been betrayed in atrocious ways by people who claim to be Christian. And so she's become jaded. Uh, she's been lashing out against God, the Bible, the church, Christians. And, of course, the trans community has accepted her um, and are polluting her mind right now with, with a lot of stuff. And, and I think she's, she's done some things that maybe she's now regretting because of that. And I was getting to the point where I wasn't going to block this person because I didn't want to do something that definitive. But I was thinking, maybe I just need to mute them. If you're on Twitter, you know what that means. It means you can't hear them for as long as you, you choose to mute them. I was thinking of muting the person just so I don't have to keep seeing the blasphemy. But then I thought about it and said, you know what? Instead, I'm going to tell the person I'm praying for them. And I did. And then this led to a a private conversation because she said, like, you don't know what this prayer means. And so I shared the gospel again. 
and, and told her that, listen, these people you're with, the second you break rank, they're going to eat you alive. They're not for you. But God is for you. And I was explaining what it means for, for Jesus and, and, and God to be for her. And you know what she texted back? She said, quote, I think you just saved my life, end quote. And so when she recovers from a, a medical condition she has right now, she wants to have a further conversation with me where I can answer all of her questions about God. And she said she actually wants to learn how to be more like Jesus. That was one case where I didn't give up, but I was close. Loved ones, take these examples between my friend and my grandmother versus this stranger on Twitter. I I should have been better to the friends I know and my my family, but the point is we're to be peacemakers to everybody. That's what we're called to, to be. As long as we have the breath of life in us, we need to actively be telling people about the only way to peace. Their biggest problem is not climate change or the war in Ukraine or gas prices or injustice or whatever else is occupying their mind. Even if they got everything they wanted to match their whims, whether their whims are right or wrong, even if they got what they wanted, they would still be at enmity with God. And the consequences of that are eternal. This is why if we are going to be true peacemakers, true harbingers of shalom, then we must go after their greatest need when it comes to peace. And that's peace with God. It's their salvation. That is what we have to chase after most. I don't think we realize this enough, or maybe we do, but we put it out of our mind. But we are actually called to be ambassadors for a different kingdom, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And we have been called to spread God, we've been called to spread God's peaceful message of reconciliation. You know, and what's astounding about that is the king of the universe, he has no obligation to seek peace. He's God. We've sinned against him. The only thing he would truly be obligated to do is call us to account, destroy us, destroy rebels. And yet, with no obligation, God still has made a peace offer to everyone. And just like ambassadors throughout all of history have always carried the terms of peace from their country to those to whom the peace is offered, We are called to do the same. Look at how Paul describes our mission and our purpose as peacemakers. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. He says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think we should all have that memorized and meditate on it at least once a week. So we remember what it's saying. It's very clear. Notice the words he used. First, we're ambassadors for Christ. He says God is making his appeal through us. He then says we plead with people. What do we plead? We say be reconciled to God. What's another way of saying that? Be at peace. Be at peace with God. God is not willing to count your trespasses or sins against you if you are at peace with him. If you repent. Why? Why will God do this? Because Jesus Christ, the God-man, he was perfect. He knew no sin. But he became sin for us. What does that mean? It means that our sinful actions were placed upon him so that he stood guilty in our place. 
even though he was perfectly righteous. He gets our sins and he pays the price on the cross for us. At the same time, it says we become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means the perfect righteousness of Jesus gets credited to our accounts. He got the credit for our sin and we get the credit of his righteousness. He got the penalty for our sin and yet we get the reward for his righteousness. And he did this for us, not because he had to, but because he loves us and because he wanted to. This is what God did to seek and save the lost. And he had to do it this way if anybody was going to be saved. We can never earn our own salvation. We can never remove our own sin. And come on, get real. It's not like we could storm heaven and assault infinite power and tie God up and say, sign this treaty. That'll never happen. He's infinite power. Some people think, well, if we just improve our technology, yeah, right, fat chance. Revelation tells us he's going to open his mouth and they're all going to die. Good luck. I mean, the fact is we can't storm heaven and say, hey, God, make peace with us. No, we are helpless before God. We are the ones who fired the first shots by sinning against him. And yet God still offers peace to both the wicked and helpless race, the human race, humanity. Why? He does it because he loves us. He does it because we're made in his image. And how does he offer this peace to us? He shows us his love by satisfying the justice that our sins deserve. He does so by dying in our place and raising on the third day. And then he calls us to him. He invites us to him. He summons us to him. And he gives everyone who will believe, he gives them new hearts and new eyes so that we will stop fighting against him and so that we will believe. And then after we believe, he tells us, go and tell others about it. You are now an ambassador. You are a, 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 the message of reconciliation has been given to you. You're to now plead with people. And you might think, well, I, I don't know enough. Yes, you do. If you are saved, then you know how to tell others to be saved. If you know where bread is, you know how to tell people where to get the bread. We are just beggars. We have found the bread of eternal life. We know where other people can find it. It's Jesus. If you've been saved, you could tell them how to be saved. Now, yes, if you want to get better at it, evangelism books, evangelism training. My Thursday small group has been going through evangelism training for a while. Jump in on all that, but you don't need it. It shouldn't be an excuse for us not to tell people about Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. But yeah, if you want to get better at it, by all means. Now, most of you know that I am Jewish, and we, Hebrew folk, we have a popular folk song, which is the title of the sermon, Havenu Shalom Aleichem. Now, I'm not going to sing it because I will butcher it, especially with all these eyes on me. So, what I will tell you is that it is just three songs repeated again and again to a very catchy tune that I end up whistling around the house all day once I listen to it. And what Havenu Shalom Aleikum means is we are bringing peace unto you. Popular folk song where the Jews conceive themselves as bringing peace to the world. We are bringing peace unto you. They understand rightly that through Abraham's seed, the whole world is supposed to be blessed. They even understand what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. Salvation is from the Jews. Okay? So we bring blessing. We bring blessing to them. They're blessed with the perfect age to come, the age of Shalom. So again, they rightly understand the role that Israel has in that. But what they miss, here's what they miss, and it's the biggest part. What they miss is that the only conduit through which that peace comes is the perfect Israelite, the Messiah. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the only one through whom that peace comes. And so, yes, we are bringing peace unto the world. But he came to save Israel and then to save Gentiles, the nations, by having them come near to the commonwealth of Israel, by having them grafted onto the tree, and then collectively together in the name of Jesus Christ, we can say to the world, Havenu shalom aleichem. We are bringing peace unto you. That is what we are called to do. And Jesus says, blessed are those who do this. Blessed is the peacemaker. Flourishing or happy is the peacemaker because this is what we've been called to do. And look, when you are found doing the very things for which you were created and saved to do, when you're doing what you were by design meant to do, you're going to be in harmony. You're going to feel a lot more at shalom, a lot more at peace. And so it's my prayer. That every single one of us here, we who believe in Jesus, that we will be peacemakers of this kind and we will bring, bring true and lasting peace to the lost. Now, that's the biggest piece of peacemaking, but it goes beyond just evangelism. We also have a calling to maintain peace and harmony here in the church. And so I want us to look really quickly at Ephesians 4.3. Paul says that we're to be, quote, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I'll leave that up there for a second. But I want you to notice we don't create unity in the church. It's the unity of who? Of the Spirit. Unity comes from the Holy Spirit. But we are called to keep it or to maintain it. So what I mean is unity is the default setting of the church made by the Holy Spirit. But every time we bring sin into it, we mess up the default settings. And so what we're called to do is go back and keep and maintain the default. How? The last few words of that. Through the bond of peace. Peacemaking is how we keep that unity. And I could tell you something. As a pastor and as a biblical counselor, I get to do this a lot. It's one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. I get to counsel a lot of people who are at enmity with each other. In fact, that is most of the counseling I probably do. And with biblical principles, we call them peacemaking principles. There's even a book called Peacemakers, which is amazing. We get to witness this reconciliation all the time. We get to see things set back to the default. Remember, the default gets broken by sin. We use these peacemaking principles to get back to the, to the default. But here's what I want you to know. That's not just for pastors. This isn't just for pastors to do. Any believer can learn how to be a peacemaker in the church. Just get the initial 30 hours of biblical counseling training. Read some good books on it. We could recommend a lot of them to you and start applying these principles. And then you will be able to bring peace to a lot of hurting people. Now, you might be thinking, oh, come on, who has time for 30 hours and you want me to read books? Listen, when it comes to our jobs and our hobbies and whatever else it is, we will put in the time to get good at it, right? Nobody's saying do 30 hours tomorrow, meaning you got time. Just add it to your to-do list and start making real progress towards it. We're called to be peacemakers. This is part of it, making peacemaking peace making between each other. And let me tell you something. Those who don't do this and just shoot from their hip and try to help people almost always make it worse. And then we got to work harder to untie those knots. And so come on, peacemaking within the church. We can do this. It's, it's, it's not far from our grasp. The truth is, it is always, always sin that disrupts peace in the church. 
100% of the time. It's selfishness. It's grumbling. It's a spirit of division. It's gossip. It's abrasiveness and stuff like that. And so seeking biblical peace is how you reverse it. I want you to look at what James says. This is a, a very interesting passage. In James chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, he tells us where the problems come from and how to fix it in the church. He says, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder. In every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Again, a very interesting passage. Just summing it up, he first tells us envy and ambition breeds disorder and evil. And let me just say this. If you're always offended, if you're always upset at people in the church for petty things, and then you go and talk to others about it, but you don't go and talk to the people you're upset with, you're not a peacemaker. You're not functioning as a peacemaker. You're doing what the first line of that passage in James said. You are spreading the envy and dissension and all that kind of stuff and and selfish ambition and, and disorder comes because of that. But what James is saying is instead, lovers of peace will respond with gentleness, with mercy, and with good works. And he says good works with a good motive, the right motive. The result of that, if we do that, is the fruit of righteousness. Meaning, when you live righteously, it produces good effects. Those good effects, though, he says, comes from those who cultivate peace. Putting it back up one more second. The last line, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by who? by those who cultivate peace. Peacemakers are the only ones within the church that help set things back to the default. So it's very important for us to have the peacemaking mentality. Now, I mentioned last week that all these Beatitudes, every single one of them, you're gonna see come up again and again within the Sermon on the Mount. They're the introduction, but Jesus uses them to, to, you know, he's gonna bring them up again and again. And it's the same with this one. There's gonna be places like in Matthew uh, chapter five, a little later in it, he's going to tell us that, hey, God doesn't even want your worship until you go make peace with your brother. In chapter seven, he's going to tell you, take the log out of your own eye first and then go to them. He's going to tell us how to be peacemakers. So if you're looking for a 10-step list, how to be a peacemaker, that's going to come up later. Otherwise, you're going to be like, hey, he preached this sermon before. And I'm not falling into that trap. What I'm telling you is he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, and he is going to tell us how to do it a little later. But for now, I just want to bring up only one more area in which we should function as peacemakers. We can also use biblical peacemaking principles to help unbelievers that we know we can help them stop fighting. We can help them arrive at peaceful solutions because we have the answers as to how. It goes without saying that if two people are going to duke it out, Christians cannot be instigating it just because we want to see a good fight. And, and I, I have a failure on this one as well. When I was like 21, I was part of the Victor Valley College Christian Club, and we heard two guys fighting out in the hallway, so we all ran out there, not to break it up, but to watch. And then after a couple of shots were thrown, then we broke it up, but we knew what we were doing. And so that is not the Christian way, right? We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be peacemakers. Uh, and so what we should try to do is try to help 
talk people out of their hostility. Maybe at work, you know, there's two people who are upset with each other. And it's very possible that you could sit as a neutral third party and use biblical principles to help build a bridge between them. And if it works, you could say, hey, this all comes from Jesus. And again, that strengthens our evangelism. Either way, they're going to appreciate if you succeed and, and they're going to be happy that you are likely looking out for them. So that's just one more thing that strengthens our witness. And so all of that is what it means to be a peacemaker. Well, as I've been showing each week, each beatitude has two parts. First, Jesus declares who is blessed or who is flourishing. In this case, it's the peacemaker. Then he tells us why, like what's going to happen to them. So if you look at the second half of the beatitude, so we're only halfway done, just kidding. If you look at the second half of the beatitude, he says, for they will be called sons of God. Now, this is amazing, an amazing promise. Not only are peacemakers those who are at peace with God, but we become his family. We become adopted sons. Now, the reason, because some people might say, why doesn't it say sons and daughters? The reason it doesn't say sons and daughters is because in the ancient world, daughters didn't inherit anything. So if it said sons and daughters, what he would be saying is males inherit the future, daughters don't. But if both men and women who follow Jesus, if both of us collectively are called God's sons, it has nothing to do with gender in this case. It has to do with inheritance. We are all going to inherit the world to come. We are going to inherit uh, what belongs to the Father the things that he plans to give to us. So this is an amazing promise. And by the way, it would have been revolutionary for that time. Now, one thing I want to bring up is last week when I was talking about the pure of heart seeing God, I mentioned that there was a tension in the Bible where some passages say we can't see God, others promise that we will see God, and the answer was simple. In the present evil age, you cannot see God because of sin, but in the perfect age to come, we'll have glorious resurrected body, resurrection bodies, and we will be able to see God. The same kind of thing is at play in our text because Jesus speaks of us being called sons of God in the future tense. He's not saying right now you'll be called sons of God. He's saying they will be. It's future. And the word called is passive, meaning we don't call ourselves this. God is the one who declares us to be his sons. Now, you might know where I'm going with this. There's a tricky part here, right? Because Paul the apostle tells us in his letters, we're already sons of God. That that we, the moment we believe, we have become adopted sons of God. Yet Jesus here speaks of it as a future reality. So are we sons now or will we not be sons till the future? And it's both. It's both. As long as it is the present evil age, we do not have our inheritance. If this is your inheritance, we are to be the most pitied of all people. This is not our inheritance. 1 John chapter 2 tells us this world is passing away. Why would you want to inherit a world that's passing away? But when the perfect age comes, an age that never passes away, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, an age in which we can never die, then yes, we will inherit the world and we will rule it with Christ. So right now, yes, in the present evil age, We have received the status of sons. We really are sons right now. We received the status. God has adopted us through Christ, but we have not received the inheritance yet. We have not received the glory of being a son and the inheritance of being a son. That will come in the future. That is why it's both now and future. This is why you hear people, Bible commentators say, the scripture has an already and not yet. You're already the status of a son, but you're not yet in the glory and inheritance of a son. That will come in the future. And since Jesus says, 
We will be called sons of God, future tense. That's the one he's talking about. He's talking about when we are made like him and we receive everything. And that's going to just be an amazing day. So, in other words, to be a peacemaker in all the ways that we've seen this morning, because that's what citizens of the perfect age are like. That's how we're supposed to be. And what he says is we will be God's sons inheriting a world of perfect peace. So, even in this world then, let's go forth. Let's declare God's peace to everyone who needs to hear it. Let's also cultivate peace among his people, the church. We're called to that. And let us show the way of peace to our unsaved neighbors, loved ones. This is our call, so let's do it. But one more thing I need to say, and then I'll wrap up. It's peace, but it's not peace at any cost. And I know I would, I would be wrong if I didn't bring this up. Many people do not want God's peace. They demand that God affirm their sin. They demand that God accept their sin. And there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who say they are affirming of our culture's most popular sins. Okay, And what I'm saying is you are not a peacemaker if you give in to that demand. Listen, you might say, but they're going to hate us and they won't listen to us. Sometimes ambassadors of peace get attacked. Sometimes we will be saying with the psalmist what the psalmist says in Psalm 120 verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. That is just the reality of this world for us. Okay? We are in the present evil age. So while we're trying to bring God's peace, sometimes people don't want to hear it. But here's the thing. We are his ambassadors, so we need to speak his peace. Not the world's peace, his peace. The world offers a fake peace built on lies. But peace that's built on lies is no peace because as soon as someone calls the lie a lie, war breaks out. That's what always happens. So as God's peacemaker, it's not a peace at any cost we promote, but it is peace at the greatest cost we promote. It's peace bought at the cost of God's own son on that cross. That is the peace we bring. But with that invitation of peace comes a command from God. Turn away from your sins. Renounce your sins. Turn to Jesus and trust on him with all of your heart. Give your life to him. Then you will be saved then you will be at peace with God. So for any unbeliever here, I ask you, what will you do? Apart from Christ, you are at war with God. And apart from Jesus, you will never have peace. And I can tell you, he is the only way. And I know, how dare you? How could you say there's only one way? Listen, no other religious leader could give you peace. Why? Because they are not both God and man. The only one who can make peace between God and man must at the same time be both divinity and humanity so he could place his hand on both. Only Jesus fits that bill. Furthermore, all the leaders of all the religions, they're dead. Their bones are in the ground. They were consumed by the lack of shalom in this world. The disharmony of sin and death claimed them. So if they couldn't escape it, what makes you think they're going to help you escape it? You're following a blind person who walked into a pit. Where does that lead you? A pit. A pit. Yet Jesus, he died for us, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He died for us in our place, but then he rose from the dead with a glorious resurrection body that is indestructible. He is at the right hand of the Father right now, alive in a human body. And because he lives, we will live. And by the power of his resurrection, he will raise us. What other religious leader can that be said of? None. There is no one else other than Jesus. 
No other religious leader who has ever lived or philosopher or doctor or whatever was able to heal like Jesus healed, calm storms with his mouth. Nobody else was able to say to a person dead four days, wake up and come out and then they come alive. Jesus alone could do all this stuff. In fact, everything Jesus did showed that only he could bring true shalom, peace with God, peace with each other, and even peace with the environment since one day he will make it all perfect. So when we say that Jesus is the only way to be saved, it's not because we're arrogant. It's it's because we're telling the truth. It's no wisdom in us. It's just the truth. We know where the water of life is, and we're telling you where to quench your thirst. We understand the problem. We know what it means for there to be a lack of peace. And when you understand what that all means, all the stuff I brought up earlier, then with us you'll realize that peace can only come through one, through Jesus Christ. So believe on him today. Give your life to him. Turn away from your sin. Believe on him. We're going to pray. And as I'm praying, you could pray to God that I'm turning away from my sin. And Jesus, I believe on you. And I'm surrendering my life to you. And you'll be saved. And then afterwards, come talk to me because there's more I want to say to you. But what we're going to do is we're going to pray and then we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let's go to the Lord.